Hey, good morning. Thank you, everyone. Hey, good, welcome. Uh, my name is Scott, and if you're new here, we're so glad that you've joined us uh, to, for worship this morning and so glad that, you've, that you're here. We have just finished a series called Christ and Culture, and we are picking back up again in our series in the Gospel of Mark. So in the first part of our series, the Gospel of Mark, we made it through the chapters 1 through 4, and today we're picking up in chapter 5. And if you've got a Bible, turn there to Mark chapter 5. It's also found in your bulletin. It will be on the screen as well. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20 this morning. Mark tells us about Jesus in this way. He says this, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep banks into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. So as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question and, and get you thinking about what, how we're going to conclude this sermon. And it's this. Basically... If you were to share with someone today, if you had the opportunity at lunch or at work this week or whatever, someone in your neighborhood, what the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he has shown you, what story would you share with them? What has the Lord done for you and what mercy has he shown you and what would you share? What would come to your heart to share and is it fresh on your heart right now? And there's this aspect of where when things are going really good in life at times, we can coast spiritually 
And, it, and the, it's a counterintuitive thing. It seems strange, but when things are good, we often forget, if we're not careful, how much the Lord has done for us. And sometimes his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his loving kindness to us starts to feel cold or get old to us. But when, when God has done some great thing for you, and you can point to it and say, That's, that is God's mercy, that is God's kindness to me, look Look what the Lord has done for me. And there have been moments in my life, even in the last couple of years, where God has done such marvelous things for me and my family that with just fresh heart, I can point to it and say, look what the Lord has done. And so I challenge you, be thinking, what, what would you share? What would be on your heart? And is that, is that fresh? Is that idea fresh on your heart? Look what the Lord has done. Or does it feel like past tense? The Lord has done great things for me, but we go on. Jesus finished teaching in Capernaum uh, back in chapter 4. And, and if you remember, he was teaching on the kingdom of God and the parable of the sower and the parable of the seed and all these things. And then he got into the boat, and he had been teaching from the boat. He invited his disciples into the, the, the boats. It was more than just the 12. There were others also. And then he said, we're going to the other side, to the Gerasenes. That would be disconcerting for everyone in that party because um, that was Gentile country. That was foreign land. And these were the enemies of Israel. And so it was comfortable for Jesus to declare the kingdom of God in Israel. But for the first time, Jesus is now saying, let's leave the confines of Israel. Let's go to a foreign nation. And in many senses, this is probably the first foreign missionary trip that we see in the New Testament. Jesus saying, let's go, let's leave Israel, let's go to the Gerasenes, and they go. As you remember, though, as they go on this trip, they face this enormous storm, and it was such a big storm that, that blew up in the Sea of Galilee that four fishermen, who are part of the 12 disciples, who are professional fishermen, I mean like deadliest catch level experienced fishermen, I love that show, am I alone in that, am I, is anybody else like... My whole family looks at me like I'm crazy because I've watched for so many seasons, but <laughs> they, they do the same thing every week. They catch crab, right? And they complain about it. But basically, these men are experienced fishermen. They've done this over and over. They know what it's like to face a storm in the, at sea. And yet when this one comes, they fear that they're dying. They wake Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? He awakes and he calms the storm. He just says, peace. And the storm stops, and they thought they were afraid of the storm, but then they were really afraid, because who is this that can even tell the wind and the weather to obey, and he does. And so today, we're going to talk about this man, Jesus and a demon-possessed man. And if you've grown up around the Bible or church and you've read through the Gospels, you've seen this story and this title, The Possessed Man. So we pick up this story. And I wanted to share with you the context. Like, remember back when we talked about the great storm and the great fear that they had, and they got all freaked out, and Jesus calmed the storm? And Because it's on the other side of that story. After having faced that storm, they immediately face another storm, and it's the storm of spiritual attack. 
And from a human perspective, though, I want you to stop and think about what it must be like to be a disciple. Again, I, I place disciples and Bible people in this different category. They're like superheroes. They, they're not real. You know, they, they don't experience human emotion and so forth. But you know that's not true. They, these are real people with real lives, with real adrenaline and anxiety and all the issues that we have. They're in this boat. They face this enormous storm. They're already filled, filled with anxiety because they're headed to a foreign nation, right, with Jesus. They face this enormous storm. They think they're going to die. Imagine the adrenaline that they're under. And then immediately they go onto the other side, and then they, they face this, this man filled with evil. Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus stepped out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit, immediately, and that's a phrase that Mark repeats again and again and again, and there's such urgency to the gospel of Mark. There's no genealogies in the gospel of Mark. There's it's just movement, immediately and immediately and immediately. And what do we learn about this man? The, the gospel of Mark is the most concise gospel that we have of the four, and yet Mark gives us so much information with so few words. We learn a great deal about this man who's demon-possessed. What do we know about him? He's homeless. He's alienated from society. He is isolated from, from friends and family. He cuts himself. He's cutting himself with stones. He is naked. He's out of his mind, and he lives in a graveyard. He lives among the dead. And the main thing I want us to see today is this. Jesus comes all the way across a raging sea for one man. It's the first missionary journey of Jesus and the, and the disciples in the New Testament. It's the first time they're, they're going to a foreign mission field outside of Israel. And, it, and we see from this story that Jesus crosses stormy sea in peril for one, for one man. One man. What do we know about him? He, again, he's alienated, he's naked, he's all this. For this man, and another thing that we, we learn about him is this. Mark says that all day and all night, people heard him crying out loudly and cutting himself with rocks. And Mark literally says that he's stoning himself. Like, he's slowly killing himself. Who does this kind of sound like in our culture? Half-clothed, running around, talking to himself, day and night, outside, it reminds me of the perpetually homeless in our culture, right? And I, I don't know what part of town you live in, but in my part of town in South Tempe, we have uh, two or three people that are perpetually homeless. I know them. My boys know them. My wife knows them. I bet everyone in our neighborhood knows them. We see the same people. They've been there for years. Some of them, it feels like, have been in our neighborhood literally since we moved here 15 years ago. Perpetually homeless. It's kind of what it reminds me of, if we're honest. But there's a difference with this man. All attempts at restraining him have been unsuccessful. He has a superhuman strength. Even chains and shackles have failed. No one's been able to overpower him. And we quickly learn uh, why, according to Mark, it's because he has literally possessed with personal evil. He's not just mentally ill. And we know that for most of the perpetually uh, homeless, one of the saddest things about that reality is is in almost every instance, is that person is dealing with, with mental illness. 
And, and this man, perhaps that's his issue as well to some degree, but there is something else. He is dealing with possession of personal evil. One of the things that we saw in our series in, in Christ and Culture, and, and actually that we refer to a lot here, is the reality that we as human beings are created in the image of God. That all people of all kinds and, and all sorts, all, every single human being is created in the image of God. And yet what we see is how evil attacks that image-bearing and wants to undermine our image bearing. In the very first three chapters of Genesis, we have established that we are created in the image of God. In the image of God, he creates them. Male and female, he creates them in the image of God. But then when the satanic attack comes from the serpent to Adam and Eve, and, and they're being tempted to eat of the fruit, one of the lies that the, the, the Satan says, and he is the liar, he says this, if you eat of it, you will what? Surely be like him. Satan lies and says, if you, if you eat of this fruit, you'll finally be like God. You'll bear his image. And that is such a distortion of lie because why? They already do bear his image. Satan wanted to blur the line between creator and creation, right? And that's one of the things that evil always does to say there's no difference between us and God or that we are God. No, God is God. We are the creature. We are created, but we are beautifully image bearers of his. And yet evil wants to lie to us about that and then to distort our humanity and to distort the beauty of our image bearing. And this is one of the things that evil is always doing. One of the primary people that I've been reading during this series in Mark um, is a, a lady named Mary Healy, and she's a theologian and a scholar and has this beautiful commentary. And she says this, the unclean spirit has taken over the center of his personality, resulting in a life of unbearable torment and alienation. Unable to function in human society, he lives among the tombs, that is, in the realm of the dead. Mark's description is designed to show how demonic influence distorts and destroys the image of God. And if we're honest, though, many of us, because we're modern people, we live in a materialistic world, we, we live in a, society, in a society where all we want to say is the materialistic world, uh, and, and that's it, and, and we put our hope in science only. And, and this idea of personal evil, of there being a, a real devil or demons, seems ludicrous to us. And yet, this is what the Bible talks about. I want you to know that the Bible does not see every problem as demonic and, or the result of demons. But Scripture does teach that we won't fully understand this broken world that we live in and the difficulties that we face in life if we don't also recognize that we don't only wrestle with flesh and blood, as Paul says, that there is a spiritual dimension. But people have a tendency to either utterly ignore the spiritual reality of, of the universe or to overemphasize it to, to such a degree that it's unhealthy. And C.S. Lewis mentioned this in his great book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read that, it's a fantastic book. And he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, 
And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. This man, he comes to Jesus immediately. You get the sense that he's running up to Jesus, that he's screaming, and he says this. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. And one of the interesting things that I find about the demons in the New Testament as they encounter Jesus is how they always identify accurately who Jesus is. The demon is fully aware of Christ's identity. He is fully aware of Christ's authority and his divinity. It's not a confession of faith. Like, I believe in you and I love you, Lord, like that, a saving faith. It is an expression of just the truth because uh, the Bible talks about this. Uh, demons have great theology. They know the truth and they shudder at the truth. They hate the truth. They lie about the truth, but they know the truth. They understand his authority. They understand his divinity and they understand his identity. What have you to do with me? And I take that to mean like, what are you doing here? <laughs> this is our territory. Like We own this area. This is Gentile territory. You stay over there. Why are you bugging me? And then he begs him, don't torment me, which is ironic because this demon and this legion of demons has been done nothing but torment this poor man for so, so many years. And Jesus begins immediately exercising the demon by saying, come out of him, you unclean spirit. And then he asks them, what is your name? And the demon or demons say, we are legion. Legion. Legion is a Latin term for a regiment um, of the Roman Empire of 6,000 soldiers. And the Jews, they're longing to be redeemed from Israel. There are legions of Roman soldiers throughout Israel, and they are begging God to send a savior who would liberate them from the legion of Roman, uh, these Roman soldiers. But instead, God is sending one who would overcome the legion of evil and death and destruction and sin. His liberation goes much deeper. And while this man's behavior may not look that much different from the mental illness we see today, he's hurting himself, he's cutting himself, he's crying out day and night, he's alone, he's isolated, he's naked. He has been experiencing the possession and torment of thousands of evil spirits. And the demons beg twice, two different things. Do not send us out of the country, which is interesting. It would seem as if they have some sense of territory and belonging. And then the demon begged to be sent into a herd of pigs instead of just out into nothing. And Jesus sent them into the swine, which are also considered unclean by the Jews. They're unable to control the swine, and they're sent over the cliff into the sea. And that's interesting, too, because for the Jews and for the Greeks, we, we love the ocean, we love the sea, and for us, it, it's a place of tranquility and peace, but for them and their culture, they looked at it as the place where evil dwelt, and so the ocean for them was a scary place, and they would call it the abyss, and so these demons then go back into the abyss, which would be their place or their abode. Mary Healy says this, neither Jesus nor his disciples are troubled by the loss of the swine or the economic damage it entails, infinitely more important 
is this man's restoration to human dignity. This wild story. Jesus tells his disciples, let's go across the sea. And they're disconcerted about that, but they do. And then they face this enormous raging storm and, and the wind blows. And that's the same word for spirit. In the New Testament, the word for spirit and wind are the same. And this enormous storm blows up. The wind is blowing. And it's as, as if evil is trying to keep them from coming. And then they, Jesus calms the storm and they go across the sea and they reach that sea. And then immediately they face evil again, personal evil. And it's interesting, the first time that Jesus begins his ministry among the Jews, he goes into the synagogue and, and declares the kingdom of God and begins to teach, and there's a man with an unclean spirit there. And as soon as he gets to Gentile territory and begins to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God, immediately they're met with a man who has a legion of evil inside him. And I want us to unpack this and then apply this story to our heart and our life. And the first thing I want us to see is this, God values one man's life profoundly. God values one changed life. The herdsmen run back to the city and to tell them what had happened to the man that everyone knew in town. Everyone knew in town. And, and also to talk about what happened to the pigs, their pigs. And people came out to see him. And then the crowd begs Jesus to leave. Think about that for a second. I mean... Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus and, and you've come to faith in him, there are few things you would want more in life than to be with Christ physically, right? Like to be with Jesus. I often daydream about what it would be like to be among the disciples, to be with Jesus. And yet this city, this group of people, in spite of this amazing liberation that God had given this man, they begged Jesus to leave. Please just leave. And so Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples to leave. And so Jesus' missionary journey, it ends there, and it was for one man. And it makes me think of Matthew 18 when Jesus says this, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus goes after the one. And if you thought of this, you know, the, the gospel writers like Mark and Matthew and John and Luke, they did not include every detail of the stories of Jesus. There's nothing in there about his childhood. He's fully God, fully man. I would love to know about that. You know, what did he do as a kid? There's lots of stories about Jesus that don't make it into the Gospels, and yet this one does. As Mark is interviewing Peter, because Peter's his primary source, right? This is how Mark gets his information from his friend, the apostle Peter. And he's tell Peter's telling him story after story, and Mark is writing it down and journaling and thinking and praying about what to include and what not to include. This story makes it into his gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And again, that shows me the value of one changed life. 
God set his heart on this man. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem, to restore this alienated, homeless man. And think about the man that God chose to go across a raging sea for. Would you choose this man? Would you say, like, all right, I'm going into a town to make an impact, an eternal impact. Who do I need to share the gospel with? I got to be honest, I think most of us would choose like a city leader, somebody who has influence, someone with power, not, not the crazy guy in town that lives in the tombs and screams days and night and drives everybody crazy. But this is the man that Jesus goes for. Now, what I find beautiful about this is, is Jesus goes after one man, and we said in our previous sermon series in, in, in Christ and Culture, be careful because in the United States right now, we are turning Christianity into this highly privatized, individualistic phase where it's, it's all about me and Jesus, right? And we, say, we said just last week how important it is for those of us who love Christ to love the broken church and to love the broken world. That if you truly love Jesus, it's a strange thing for people to say, like, I love Jesus, but I don't really care about his body. I don't care about his family. I don't care about the people for whom Christ died. I just want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so on the one hand, you should be highly suspect of a, of a church or a theology or, or type of faith that says it's only about me and Jesus. But you should also be highly suspicious of a faith that says it's Christian that is not personal that doesn't see the beauty of the reality of stories like this, that Jesus goes for one man on this mission to save this man, to change this man, to liberate this man, and be suspicious of a Christianity that does not call people to faith. We don't follow a Christianity that says it's only about doing good or social justice or that kind of thing. We follow a Christianity that says we do good, we do justice for Jesus out of love because of all that he has done for us, out of gratitude. Amen? We must know him personally and take glory and joy in the reality that he too, he came for us and through a raging storm to get here, to the raging storm of the cross for you, for me. He came for one man. And he came for you and me. The other thing I want to see is Jesus' liberation is comprehensive. Look at its totality. In Mark 5, 15, and they came to Jesus, these, these, this crowd, the herdsmen go and get these people, and they come back, and they see this demon-possessed man, or the one who had had been demon-possessed, the one who had had been, sort of using this past tense, the legion, sitting there first. He's sitting. He's clothed. And he's in his right mind. There's three points. Man, I got another three-point sermon right here. He's sitting, he's closed, and he's in his right man, mind. He's seated. He's finally at rest. Day and night, he's cried out among the tombs, running around the mountainside, cutting himself, yelling, crying out. He has no rest. I, as a pastor over the years, I, I've dealt and talked with many folks that battle mental illness of some sort or some anxiety, uh, obsessive-compulsive, depression, and it feels like you can't rest. There's just this inner turmoil constantly within your heart, and it affects your adrenaline. It affects, you know, uh, if, if you've ever battled anxiety, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And this man had all that going on and a thousand or maybe even 6,000 evil spirits who were tormenting him day and night. And now he's at rest. He is seated. And he's clothed. Jesus cares about his physical needs. He's got clothing. They, they clothed this man. After the fall in Genesis 3, the state of being unclothed is a shame, right? Before that, it's a part of creation. They are naked and un unashamed. Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed, unaware of themselves in that way. And then after the fall, they're naked and ashamed, hiding, seeking clothing. And since then, the, the Bible speaks of being clothed as a good thing, hide, uh, not living in the shame of sin, and, and dignified in part of our humanity to be clothed. This man is seated, he's at rest, and he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. He's sane again. He can think clearly. He's returning to himself. And if any of you have ever had a friend or a family member go down a dark road into addiction or mental illness or, or demon possession, you see these people that you love and adore, and, and you say to yourself, and you may even see to them, it feels like you're not even the same person anymore. And they may argue and say, no, no, this is more me than I've ever been. And you're like, no, no, it's not. I can barely recognize you. And of course, they maintain their dignity. Of course, they still, at their root, are bearing the image of God. But look at what evil does, and look at what Jesus did. Evil had stripped him of his dignity. He's alone. He's alienated. He's isolated. And he's slowly killing himself. He's out of his mind, and he's naked. That's what evil does to us. And we're so tempted to listen to the liar and all the ways he twists the truth. But look what Jesus does. He gives us rest. He clothes us. He includes us in community and calls us into this loving relationship. Addiction experts tell us that isolation is a key factor in continuing the cycle of addiction. And as long as the addict is left alone to do what he or she wants, they will continue it. And the cycle continues. I don't want to know. I don't want people knowing where I am. I don't want people knowing what I'm doing. And there's great power in isolation for the evil one. We know that. But now Jesus is calling him out of that. He's calling him out. Jesus restores this man to community, and then he sends him on mission. It's beautiful. The demons beg Jesus to be sent into the swine. The townspeople beg Jesus, just leave Jesus, get out of here. But the restored man begged Jesus to be with Jesus. Can I go with you? I want to go with you. Of course of course that's what he wants. But Jesus says this. I, he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how, many how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jesus is not rejecting him as a disciple. Instead, he is sending him home. And he knows what's best for this man. Some of the disciples, as you know, that begin to follow him say, leave family, leave home, leave friends, come follow me. You need to reject everyone and come and follow me. But this man, he says, no, you need to go home. He has been isolated. He has been alienated from his friends, from his family, from his community. And he gives them this beautiful gift and says, no, I want you to go home. 
and I want you to share with them all that the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he's given you. Jesus does not reject him as a disciple. He sends him home, and Jesus does not reject him as a disciple. Instead, think about it, he commissions him as the very first missionary in the New Testament. Go and share all that the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, and it worked. He went throughout the Decapolis, that's the 10 cities in that region, and he shared all that the Lord had done for him. And the people marveled. This one man's changed life, this one man who had his life changed, began to lay the groundwork for the missionary journeys in the Gentile nations that then the Apostle Paul and others would go do after Jesus rose from the dead. This one man, this changed life, had such an impact. Challenge. What would you share this week? A friend, a family member, somebody at school, somebody at work, you have an opportunity to share that the hope, the hope that you have in Jesus, and you get a chance to share all that the Lord has done for you and the mercy he's shown you. What story would you go to? What would you say? And my challenge for you, is it fresh on your heart right now? Can you be honest enough if it's not? And it's, it's fine in one sense. It, it, a starting place of reengaging with the Holy Spirit is to say, you know what? The gospel was fresh for me in the past, but right now I have to admit it's not. What was thrilling to me at one time has become cold. Then maybe you have forgotten all that the Lord has done for you. Maybe you're forgetting. And the place to start is just to ask the Holy Spirit Spirit, would you come and fill me and would you restore unto me the joy of my salvation, just as David prayed, whose heart would also grow cold. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. May we, like the psalmist, cry out, Lord, your, your mercies are new every morning. And we don't invite, we do not invite crisis into our life, but just to go back and to recount, Lord, all the ways in which you've been merciful and ask the Holy Spirit to let our hearts be in touch with how good God is and the kindness that he's shown us, all that the Lord has done for us, all that the Lord has done for us. And I want you to see how powerful your story is. To sh when we share with people all that the Lord has done for us, that is such power. This man doesn't have any theology, has no Bible study training, he hasn't been through surge school, he hasn't sat even under biblical preaching, he's never read the Bible. He's as lost as you can be, and he was filled with demons. It doesn't get much worse. And yet, his story was compelling and powerful, and that's all he had. I don't really know that much about this Jesus. He came across the sea. He, I was tormented by evil, and look what he did for me. I think he's God. You don't have to have all the answers. You have your story of what the Lord has done for you. Share that story. And friends, as we prepare our hearts to go to the, the Lord's Supper just now, I want you to, to remember what the gospel has done for you what the Lord has done for you, you would have no spiritual rest without Jesus Christ. Day and night, you could cry out and, and just be 
seeking? Like, what, what could I do to get God to forgive me? What could I possibly do to get God to forgive me? But it would be worthless. It doesn't work. But when Jesus comes and he, you hear the good news about him, and maybe this is the first time you're hearing this this morning, that in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Psychiatrists and psychologists will say that the, one of the number one heart issues that people deal with is guilt and shame. And you can even say that you don't even believe categorically in, in sin. But I don't believe you. Because I see the guilt and the shame that we all live with. And Jesus comes along and says, peace to your storm, to your storm of your heart that says there can never be peace in my heart. And the Lord says, peace. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And something else I love about this story is, is that when Jesus heals this guy he, and he's seated, he doesn't sit him down and go, what on earth did you do? How did you get 6,000 demons inside of you? My gosh, what have you done? Oh, I'm disgusted at you. <laughs> you know, he doesn't do that. Instead, he clothes him and he sends him on mission with the good news of the gospel. He's a son of God now. You'll never have spiritual rest until your heart rests in the gospel. And after you do rest in the gospel, that's not a one-time deal. That's, that is the lifelong pursuit of the Christian. Continually battling to rest in the gospel instead of all of our, the ways our anxious hearts go astray. Rest and you're clothed. You're seated at the right hand of God because of the gospel. You, you have rest now because of the gospel, and you're clothed. And one of the most beautiful things I get to tell you about the gospel all the time is you're not just forgiven in the gospel. You are clothed in the gospel. It's one thing for me to forgive you if you've harmed me or if I harm you and you forgive me. It's another thing for you to say, I not only forgive you, I love you, and I want you in my life. Your family it's one that say, I forgive you, but you know what? I don't trust you. I forgive you. We're not really reconciled. I don't really want you. And you know what? That's appropriate in several of our human relationships, but that's not what Jesus does. He says, not only do I forgive you, I welcome you. I robe you with my righteousness. He clothes us. We're seated. We have rest. And he gives us his righteousness. When God the Father looks at us, he does not see us robed in our sin and our shame and our brokenness. He sees the righteousness of Christ all over us. And that's, that's good news. He's seated. He's clothed. And he puts this man in his right mind. And as we meditate on the gospel over a lifetime, we become clearer and clearer about who we are. We get more clarity of mind. And the gospel begins to change our heart from the inside out. What has the Lord done for you? Let's pray.